Part Two, Chapter Five of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Glover. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borum. Saturday. Saturday is the name, not so much of a day, as of a specific phase of human experience, and it is a great phase. We all catch ourselves at odd moments, living over again some of the unforgettable Saturdays of long ago. In actual fact, a man may be lounging in an armchair beside his winter fire, or sprawling on the lawn on a drowsy summer afternoon. But under such conditions, the actual fact is soon relegated to oblivion. A faraway look comes into his eyes, a wayward smile flits over his face, and, giving rein to his fancy, he sees landscapes on which his gaze has not rested for many a long year. He roams at will among the golden Saturdays of Old Lang Syne. He feels afresh the mighty thrill that swept his soul when, after a long heroic struggle, his side won that famous match upon a certain village green. He lives again through the fierce excitement of a paper chase that led the hare and hounds over the great green hills, and down through the dark pine forest in the valley. He enjoys once more the bird's nesting expedition in the winding lane and he sees as vividly as he saw them at the time the shining trophies that rewarded his fishing excursions to the mill-ponds and trout-streams of the outlying countryside. In those far-off days, Saturday was the wild romance of the week. I remember being told by my first schoolmaster that Saturday was named after Saturn, and that Saturn was the planet that had rings all round it. From that hour, by a singular confusion of ideas, I always thought of Saturday as the day that had the rings round it. I somehow associated the day with the lady of the nursery rhyme who has rings on her fingers and bells on her toes, and who, therefore, has music wherever she goes. I like to think that Saturday moved among the other days of the week in such melodious pomp and splendor. The notion intensified the zest with which I welcomed the great day. For Saturday was great. It was great in its coming and great in its going. It began gloriously and it ended gloriously. I do not mean that it ended as it began, by no means. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. The glory of Saturday's dawn was one glory. The glory of Saturday's dusk was another glory. Saturday began like a red Indian shouting his war-whoop as he takes to the trail. It ended like a monk who, in the stillness of his cloister, chants his evening hymn. It takes a boy a minute or two, on waking, to assure himself that it is really Saturday. He is not quite sure of himself. The notion seems too good to be true. He sits bolt upright, rubs his eyes, and stares about him for some confirmation of the joyous suspicion 
that is bringing the blood to his cheeks in excitement. Is it really Saturday? He distrusts, and not without cause, the confused sensations of those waking moments. He made a mistake once before. He fancied that it was Saturday, made all his plans accordingly, and discovered to his disgust a few minutes later that it was only Friday after all. That Friday, at any rate, was a most unlucky day. But Saturday, with what tingling exhilaration and boisterous delight, the conviction that it was Saturday fastened upon us. Saturday was our day. We raced out after breakfast like so many colts turned loose upon the heath. We tossed up our caps for the sheer joy of it. Whatever the ordeals of the week had been, we forgave all our tyrants and tormentors on Saturday morning. And in that gracious and benignant absolution, we experienced a foretaste of the saintliness with which the great day wore to its close. For Saturday, however spent, reached its climax in a consciousness of virtue so complete and so serene and so beatific as to be almost unearthly. Such a delicious content seldom falls within the experience of mortals. Saturday night was bath night, and few sensations in life are more delectable than the angelic self-satisfaction that overtakes the average boy after having been subjected to the magic discipline of hot water and clean sheets. The outward change is wonderful, but the inward transformation exceeds it by far. He feels good, looks good, smells good, is good. A boy after a bath is at peace with all the world. The weak may have gone hardly with him. Parents and teachers may have shown a vexatious incapacity to see things from a boy's standpoint. The proprietors of orchards and gardens may have exhibited, perhaps even on Saturday afternoon, a singular inflexibility in their interpretation of the laws relating to property. The world as a whole may have behaved in a manner woefully inconsiderate and unjust, but on Saturday night, under the softening influence of a hot bath and a clean bed, a boy finds it in his heart to forgive everything and everybody. A vast charity wells up in his soul. As he lays his damp head on his snowy pillow, he revokes all his harsh judgments and cancels all his stern resolves. He will not run away from home after all. Instead of abandoning his unfeeling seniors to their hatred, malice, and uncharitableness, he will treat them with magnanimity and tolerance. He will give them another chance. It is possible appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, that they do not mean to be unsympathetic. They simply do not understand. Thinking thus, the young saint falls asleep in the odor of sanctity and soap. The more wayward and troublesome he has been in the daytime, the more angelic will he appear under these new conditions. Watching him as he slumbers, one of the Saturnian rings seems to encompass his brow like a halo. Saturday has come to an end. Now, this saintly young savage of ours will learn, as the years go by, that life itself has its Saturday phase. Dr. Chalmers used to say 
that our allotted span of threescore years and ten divides itself into seven decades, corresponding with the seven days of the week. The seventh, the stretch of life that opens out before a man on his sixtieth birthday, is, the doctor used to say, a sabbatic period. In it, he should shake himself free, as far as possible, from the toil and moil of life, and give himself to the cultivation of a quiet and restful spirit. That being so, it follows that the sixth period, the period that opens out before a man on his fiftieth birthday, is the Saturday of life. It is a great time, every way, like the Saturday of the old days, and like the Saturday of riper years, it has characteristics peculiarly its own. On his fiftieth birthday, if Mr. J. W. Robertson Scott is to be believed, a man enters the gates of a new world. It is not of necessity a better world or a worse one. It is simply a different one. We seldom enter upon a new experience without finding that the change has involved us in a few drawbacks and deprivations, as well as in some distinct benefits and advantages. The step that a man takes on his fiftieth birthday is no exception to this rule. Mr. Robertson Scott caught sight of the gates of the new era some time before he actually reached them. In the tram, one evening, about six months ago, a schoolboy rose and offered me his seat, he tells us. The incident startled him. A man who is still in the forties does not expect to receive such courtesies. He consoled himself, however, with the assumption that the attentive schoolboy was probably a boy scout who had suddenly realized that the day was closing in without his having done the good deed prescribed for each twenty-four hours of the life of the perfect baden poelite. Four months later, however, the same thing happened again, and then, shortly after, came the fiftieth birthday. Clearly it was Saturday morning. Now, the striking thing about Mr. Robertson Scott's experience is the fact that his attainment of his jubilee appealed to him, not as an end, but as a beginning. It was not so much a premonition of senility and decay as the entrance upon a fresh phase of life. When Horace Walpole wrote to Thomas Gray in 1766, urging him to write more poetry, Gray replied that when a man has turned fifty, as he had just done, there is nothing for it but to think of finishing. He voiced the feeling of the period. In the eighteenth century, a man of fifty was classified among the veterans. A hundred years later, a very different conviction held the field. Tolstoy tells us that his fiftieth year was the year of his greatest awakening and enlightenment, and, in The Poet at the Breakfast Table, Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes makes the old master witness to something of a similar kind. His friends are anxious to know how and when he acquired his wealth of wisdom and he is able to reply with remarkable precision. It was on the morning of my fiftieth birthday that the solution of life's great problem came to me. It took me just fifty years to find my place in the eternal order of things. 
such testimonies go a long way towards vindicating Mr. Robertson Scott's assumption that the fiftieth birthday marks rather a new beginning than a sad, regretful close. The fiftieth birthday is Saturday morning, and who, on Saturday morning, feels that the week is over? On the contrary, Saturday morning is, to most people, more insistent than any other morning in its demands upon their energies. Walk up the street on a Saturday afternoon, and you will see your neighbors garbed and employed as they are never garbed or employed on any other day. On Saturday we weed the garden, mow the lawn, and effect the week's repairs. On Saturday we attend to a multitude of minor matters, for which we have had no time during the week. On Saturday we clear up, and on Saturday night we are tired. It by no means follows, therefore, that, because a man's fiftieth birthday is his Saturday morning, his week's work is done. It is indisputable, of course, that a man of fifty has left the greater part of life behind him. He may be pardoned if he pauses at times, to take long and wistful glances along the road that he has trodden. It will not be considered strange if, on very slight provocation, he drops into a rapture of reminiscence. There is a subtle stage in the development of fruit at which, having attained its full size, it ripens rapidly. A man enters upon that stage on his fiftieth birthday. A shrewd observer has said that, like peaches and pears, we grow sweet for a while before we begin to decay. The Saturday of life is sweetening time. We become less harsh in our criticisms, less overbearing in our opinions, more considerate towards our contemporaries, and more sympathetic towards our juniors. The week's work is by no means finished. Much remains to be done. But it will be done in a new spirit, a Saturday spirit. And if the man of fifty be spared to enjoy octogenarian honors, he will smile as he recalls the immaturity and unripeness of life's first five decades. It is a poor week that has no Saturday and no Sunday in it. To have finished at fifty, an old man will tell you, would have meant missing the best. It has often struck me as an impressive coincidence that it was when Dr. Johnson was approaching his fiftieth birthday, life Saturday morning, that he discovered a significance in Saturday that, until then, had eluded him. He felt, as we all feel on Saturdays, that the time had come to clear up, to put things in their places, and to overtake neglected tasks. And this is the entry he makes in his journal. Having lived, not without an habitual reverence for the Sabbath, yet without that attention to its religious duties, which Christianity requires. I resolve henceforth, first, to rise early on Sabbath morning, and, in order to that, to go to sleep early on Saturday night. Second, to use some more than ordinary devotion as soon as I rise. Third, to examine into the tenor of my life, and particularly the last week, and to mark my advances in religion or my recessions from it. Fourth, to read the scriptures methodically, 
with such helps as are at hand. Fifth, to go to church twice. Sixth, to read books of divinity, either speculative or practical. Seventh, to instruct my family. Eighth, to wear off by meditation any worldly soil contracted in the week. The significance of this heroic record lies in the resolve that Saturday, so far from unfitting him for Sunday, shall lead up to it as a stately avenue leads up to a noble entrance hall. I resolve to go to sleep early on Saturday night, exactly a hundred years after the great doctor had inscribed this famous entry on the pages of his journal. Charlotte Elliot wrote her well-known hymn in praise of Saturday. Before the majesty of heaven, tomorrow we appear. No honor half so great is given throughout man's sojourn here. The altar must be cleansed today. Meet for the offered lamb. The wood in order we must lay and wait tomorrow's flame. I have heard scores of sermons on the proper observance of Sunday, and, somehow, I have never been impressed by their utility. One of these days some pulpit genius will preach on the proper observance of Saturday, and then, quite conceivably, the new day will dawn. As I lay down my pen, a pair of experiences rush back upon my mind. The one befell me at sea, the other on land. 1. In the course of a voyage from New Zealand to England, it became necessary, in order to harmonize the clocks and calendars on board with the clocks and calendars ashore, to take in an extra day. We awoke one morning, and it was Saturday. We awoke next morning, and it was Saturday again. That second Saturday was the strangest day that I have ever spent. I never realized the extent to which Saturday leads up to Sunday, as I realized it that day. 2. I once numbered among my intimate friends a Jewish rabbi. I found his society extremely delightful and wonderfully instructive. He often took me to his synagogue, showed me its treasures, and initiated me into its mysteries. It was all very beautiful and very suggestive, but I invariably came away feeling dissatisfied and disappointed. I had been gazing upon the emblems and symbols of a Saturday faith. Like that weird Saturday on board the Tongariro, it was a Saturday that led to a Saturday, a Saturday that ushered in nothing holier or sweeter than itself. Saturn with all his rings is grand, but the sun is grander still. It is from the sun that Saturn derives his brightness and his glory. Ask Saturn the secret of his splendor, and it is to the sun that he unhesitatingly points. As it is with these mighty orbs themselves, so it is with the days that bear their names. As Samuel Johnson and Charlotte Elliot knew so well, it is the glory of Saturday to prepare the way for Sunday. Saturday belongs to the order of St. John the Baptist. John was the greatest of all the sons of men, yet it was his mission to clear the path for the coming of a greater. The Old World Saturday Sabbath, commemorating a completed creation, 
led up to the New World Sunday Sabbath, commemorating a completed redemption. The oracles and mysteries that I saw in the synagogue, the emblems and expressions of a Saturday faith, were sublime. But their sublimity lay in the fact that they pointed men to, and prepared men for, a Sunday faith, a faith that gathers about a wondrous cross and an empty tomb, a faith from which that Saturday faith, like Saturn bathed in sunlight, derives alike its luster and its fame. End of Part 2, Chapter 5